Well, welcome to the beginning of our summer study. Um, you didn't know that you were here for that. You got the bonus round. You'll remember last year we did the hard sayings, and, and this year we've got another study. It's, it's the story of the gospel, the story of, of salvation. And, um, and I'm going to start the study tonight with a question for you. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a hard question. It's a pretty broad question. And the question is this. What is the matter with us? What's wrong? And, and when I say what is the matter with us, I mean with all of humanity. What's the problem? I remember a couple of years ago, I don't know if you're a big secular music fan. Uh, I am, despite my upbringing. Um, <clears throat> and Jewel, you remember Jewel had a song out, and, the, and it, the theology of the song is horrible. You know, we are God's hands and God's feet, and if it's not for us, God will never get anything done. But the beginning of that song, do you remember the first line of that song? She says, if I could tell the world just one thing, it would be we're all okay. And I remember hearing that and thinking, okay, she's not serious. Um, I mean, I would love to go meet her up the street at Starbucks and say, hold on, seriously. Was that, did you just write that because it rhymed with the next word or the next lyric at the end of the line? Or do you really believe that? I mean, do you really live in the world that we live in and think, we're all just all right. Um, here's a couple of problems to me. In Africa, women and children are still sold into slavery. Who wants to go tell them that the world is okay? Like Oprah's The Secret. If you would just think positive thoughts, you, it would all be okay. It's ridiculous. When terrorism is rampant in the world that we live in, when in Asia young girls are forced into lives of prostitution, uh, and then I would say to Jewel, hey, you know, when you go back to your hotel room tonight, pick any station in Memphis to watch before you go to bed. It doesn't matter what station you pick. Just watch one, and like the first 14 minutes are going to be on how corrupt our governmental leaders are, on how many people today in our city were robbed, raped, or killed, uh, and, and, how, and, and how there's this diff, deep rift of racism that runs through our city. If you think we're all okay, you're out of your mind. Guys, nothing is okay. Everything in the world we live in is messed up. The question is why. What's the problem? And we're going to address that this evening, but I've got to confess, we're going to do it in, in a semi-different way than what you're used to. Um, as a staff, we have a summer teaching rotation and our texts are assigned. And I have a huge one. I have like a chapter and a half of Genesis. That's big. And, and it's not going to be different just because literarily it's big. Like almost all of redemptive history is laid out in what we're going to look at tonight. I mean, there is so much stuff. And I've got to mention huge theological doctrines that we can't sit on for like four months um, because of the size of the text. And so we're going to have to be brief to make our way through it. I just want you to know my goal is to lay the foundation of the summer study. Um, and in doing that, we're going to answer the question, what is wrong? And in doing that, we're going to answer two questions. Why do we need to be saved? And what do we need to be saved from? And I think once we answer those, a light bulb is going to go on into what's wrong. Uh, it's not difficult to find out. So here's what's going to be different. Because this text is so big. If I read this, you're all going to be gone. Um, usually we will read you the text and then go back and pull out three or four points and tell some stories and Everybody talks about it at the Piccadilly. We can't do that. 
Because it's so big. So what I've got to do is walk through sections of the text with you as we study it. And I'll make some applications. I can't read the whole text. You'll all be lost. Uh, But I think there's enough stuff noteworthy that I can keep you uh, with me as we do that. Let me pray before we do. Father, we thank You that we hold in our laps and on our tables the inspired Word of God. Um, And we, this evening, place ourselves beneath its authority. This is truth. If there is anything in our thinking in our lives that is inconsistent with this, Father, it is us who are wrong. We beg that You would give us the Holy Spirit tonight to see and understand and rightly apply Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, first of all, to understand what's wrong, we've got to answer the question, why do we need to be saved? Well, that really depends on who you ask, doesn't it? I mean, if you ask Jewel, for example, nobody needs to be saved because we're all okay. So we can just sweep the issue under the rug and, and, and get on with life. I want to show you a time in Scripture... When she was right. I mean, you know there was a time when everything was okay. Let me show it to you if you've got your Bible. Uh, Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And really from 2.15 to to chapter 3, we could say this is the way it was supposed to be. This is the way it was created and intended to function before an intruder comes in. This was it. Um, let's look at it together in verse 15. And this verse is, it's just huge, right where we start. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We already got to stop. We got to talk about work for a minute. Is work bad? Is work a result of the fall? No. The first thing that we see our God do in chapter 1 is work. The first thing He tells Adam to do is work. I know this is going to shatter anything you've ever thought. When you get to heaven, we're probably not going to play harps on clouds and just hang out. You're going to work. I mean, creation is going to be reformed without the effects of sin, and there's going to be stuff to do. We will continue to work. But notice here, work is in in and of itself good. Um, Adam and Eve did not collapse in the grass after a full day of work and say to one another, I mean, how many days is it till the next three-day weekend? They didn't do that. Their work was invigorating and it had dignity and they are, they are perfectly working for the glory of God. It's wonderful. Look at verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And again, we could spend a month on that verse. Uh, This is huge. Adam and Adam alone is bound by what theologians would call the covenant of works. And it's only Adam. Sorry, you missed out. Uh, And what it was is Adam and his relationship and acceptance to God are tied to his works of obedience. It's only for Adam. All he has to do is obey this commandment. It's set up in his favor. Don't eat from this tree and tend the garden. I mean, that's, 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 that's kind of slighted towards things that he could do. The odds are in his favor. He is set up for success. But notice the goodness of our God in this. Do you see how vast is the permission in the commandment? 
You can eat of all the trees in the garden except for this one. Isn't that different than the way that you were brought up and the way that you related to rules? Is there more freedom or restraint in God's rules that He places on Adam? There's way more freedom. Way more freedom. The situation gets a whole lot better for Adam in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then notice very closely in verse 19, So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Okay? So what Adam is doing is the creatures are brought before him and he's naming them. But at the same time, he's looking for a helper. He names the elephant and then thinks, that one's not going to work. So he spends an amount of time doing this and he goes through all of creation as God forms the animals and names them and he can't find anything that's a suitable match. Nothing is an acceptable helper. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There Again, so much is going on. It's, I wonder how many people think about this. Even the next wedding you go to, the father of the bride is almost... There almost might not be a time when he does something more like God does with the church than what he's doing. The father makes Eve from Adam and then brings her to Adam. Really, I would argue it's Christ that's doing this. Makes Eve and then he brings the woman to Adam. And notice Adam's response. This is so amazing. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last. I mean, he is so excited and so full of joy and so full of ecstasy. Nothing else in creation worked until now. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken of me. Now, a quick side road. Look, I don't want to be mean. This is going to sound awful until you, unless you know who I am. I'm, I'm glad if you have a bumper sticker on your car that says, I love my wife. I, pr- I promise I'm glad for you. But to me, that's like having a bumper sticker that says, I breathe oxygen. I mean, we do. Of course you do. Um, but really, you get into this verse. If you really have ever wondered why it goes past the bumper sticker, why should you love your wife? Here's some good application for you. There is more dignity given to womanhood in these couple of verses. Um, why should we cherish our wives? One is that she is made for you because nothing else in all of creation is fitted for your need. If you saw the movie Jerry Maguire, it's so cheesy when he walks in and says, you complete me and all that jazz. But it's true. Men, as macho and as whatever as you think you are, you are incomplete without her at this point in the story. She brings value and dignity that there's something missing that you don't have. She should be cherished. She should be treated and loved as such. Each needs the other for their wholeness. And then Adam declares her in verse 23 to be a woman, which literally means she was made from me. And then in verse 24, you get the mandates for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And I want to pause before we get to verse 25. I, I think you understand that. The leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh. Now, what's beautiful here is verse 25, because it's going to change in a minute. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we hear the word naked, and it's like, ooh, like a bunch of school kids. I mean, they were really naked in everything they did. They worked together naked. They played together naked. Everything they did was naked. There was just a bunch of naked going on in the garden. That's all you can say at this point. But guys, let me tell you what is so beautiful about this. We have to ask why. Why are they naked and unashamed? This is so glorious. Because they are completely innocent and intimate before God and each other. Everything is right. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. There is nothing to hide. There is nothing to be ashamed of. They were created to enjoy and perfectly glorify God in all that they did, and they're doing it. And it's right. Till chapter 3. It just sounds bad in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The word crafty, it's just, it's just bad. Now listen, now look at what he does, because this is, you know, if you think Satan has got horns and a tail and he's an idiot, you're a fool. He's genius. He could outsmart you and outace you on any seminary exam you could ever want to take. Look at what he does. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, this is the most dangerous of all lies because it contains a half-truth. I mean, he did say some things about not eating from the trees. He didn't say anything about don't eat from all the trees. But there was a prohibition from eating from one of the trees. What he does here is sickening. He's doing two things. Number one, he's challenging the truth of God. Did he really say that? But, but what's even worse than that, I think, is he's challenging God's goodness. Is God really telling you that there's something that you can't have if you really want it? I mean, how can He be good if He's, if he's setting limits and telling you that you can't have them? One of the commentators said, and this is, this is unbelievable, they had nothing more to learn about the goodness of God except for how costly it would be to lose. Isn't that the truth? They had nothing to lose but everything. Look at verse 2. Eve starts out well for like a second. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Amen. He said that. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Something a little news introduced. Did God ever tell them not to touch it? Not that we know. It, we, if, if, if He did tell them not to touch it, we're not previa to that through the Holy Spirit. But evidently, that wasn't said. So she kind of gets it right, but kind of doesn't. And look at his reply in verse 4. This is why he's genius. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. In verse 5, this is where they bit the bait. For God knows that when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. That's the big question. Why did they eat the apple? Was it because it was so beautiful? Like, you know, if you have kids and they watch Snow White, was it just so irresistible? I don't think so. I think it's the phrase, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be on an equal level of your creator? Don't you want to be important? Guys, here's what's even sadder than that. They already were like Him. They couldn't be any more like God at this point than ever. They are perfectly reflecting the image of God. There's no distortion. You and I do it in a dim way because sin has has ravished us, but we still there's there's it's like a broken mirror. Not for Adam and Eve. They are perfectly reflecting the image of God. And and we gotta pause here just for a second, guys, because he does the same thing with you and I. He tempts them with what they already have. We are so tempted and enticed by materialism and consumerism and all these things that will make us happy when in reality, we already should be. And in verse 6, they eat it. Why do they do that? The text says that the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired. Why? To make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave to her her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And this is amazing when it's tied to verse 25. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That is so amazing. Guys, obviously we have before us the reason why we need to be saved. Hopefully you knew the answer before you got here. The reason why we need to be saved is because of sin. But what is sin? What is it? I had a um, Jehovah's Witness on the bottom of my driveway today that couldn't tell me. What is it? It's perfectly illustrated in this text. Sin at its core, is rebellion against God. All of it can be traced to that. Sin, ultimately, is rebellion against God. Our first parents in the garden traded glorifying God with rebelling against Him and wanting to become His rival. And we all bear their sin. It's the doctrine of original sin. Because of our parents, we all are now born sinners. We are all born rebels against God. And you, uh, you probably don't like that. Um, let me tell you why you have to, if you like your Bible. Even if you don't, you still have to like it, because it's truth. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. How do you argue that? I'm born in sin, because I inherited it from Adam. It says in Romans 5.12. This is the way I'm born. This is the way I'm made. Guys, the cause of the mess is sin. We are all universally guilty and all need a Savior. And the reason why is because we're all sinners. We are all rebels against God's glory. Meaning, we all want the glory on our own. At the core of our humanity, we want life to be about us. 
And we want to rob God of His glory and have it for ourselves. Guys, that's the problem. You're helpless to do anything about it. Now let me tell you why you need to be saved. What do you need to be saved from? And we see that in the rest of chapter 3. First in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed together fig leaves and made loincloths. Um, I found, I hate doing lists, but I think there's five things you're about to see that we need to be saved from. The first is their guilt and shame. As soon as they know they're naked, they try to make some, some fig leaves and sew them together and think that's going to solve the problem. Um, all of their unashamed, pure intimacy with God from verse 25 is lost. They're now ashamed of their bodies. Uh, they're ashamed of their souls. They are ashamed of being known for who they really are. And their own consciences have accused them. It's another interesting thing they need to be saved from. And it's their own attempts at their own salvation. In the same verse, what do they need to be saved from? Their own attempts to fix it. Their own attempts to make a covering that would hide themselves from God. It's like, have your kids ever made a mess like with paint? They decide they want to finger paint. And you walk in there and it's everywhere. It's on the walls and it's on the carpet and it's on them and it's on their hands and they're like, and you start, you're like, oh, what are you doing? We just put down carpet. And they're like, hold on, we'll fix it. And they want to rub it and you're like, just stop. Just stop it. All you're doing is making the situation worse. Guys, if you think you can save yourself by making something or doing something, stop. You can't. Look at verse 8. This is unbelievable. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. <clears throat> like I would... I'm gonna, um, usually when I'm unsure about something, I ask Jeff Sample, because he's usually right. And he agreed with me here. I think what's unbelievable about this is this is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I think. Who is walking with him in the midst of the garden? Possibly and probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And one commentator says, I don't know if you... He's kind of taking some liberty, but he could be right. Listen to what he says. Since God was their close friend, we would assume that they undoubtedly ran out to meet Him, eager to converse with Him about the day's events. I mean, imagine what it must have been like to walk with Christ and to enjoy His fellowship uninhibited by our sin. But now all of a sudden they got to run and hide. I mean, that's something is different. Look at verse um, 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Obviously, he knows it's rhetorical. In verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The third thing that you need to be saved from is fear. And that's a brand new emotion for our first parents. They had nothing to be afraid of to this point until they sin. And the first thing that they're afraid of is their Creator. And then this verse 11. I don't know if this is... This, if you've seen, um, if you've seen the movie, what is it, the line, the witch in the wardrobe? Verse eleven so reminded me of something you would see Aslan say in the movie because I think it's so depicted. Look at what he says. He said, "Who told you that you were naked? How would you like to have been at that event? We hid ourselves because we were naked. Really? Who told you 
that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you break the bonds of the stipulations of the covenant of works? Did you? And then look at um, what our stellar example of manliness does in verse 12. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Now most people think Adam is blaming Eve. He's not. Adam is so in love with Eve, it's the reason why he does what he did. I mean, what if, what if Adam, I mean, Adam could have seen her bite the apple and go, wait a minute, and ran and found God. I think he is so in love with his bride, because there's nothing else like her, he'd rather follow her into this than be separated. That's just an opinion. But notice what he says very closely. He doesn't blame her. He blames God. The woman that you gave me, this is your fault. You're the one that made her and gave her to me. This isn't my fault. And it's not her fault. It's yours. And then God questions Eve in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve follows the serpent and Adam follows Eve and nobody follows God. That's basically what we've got to this point. And now everything has changed. Not only is, is a man's relationship to God about to change, but his relationship to one another and the entire creation is about to change forever until glorification. Fourth thing that we need to be saved from is the curse. It's very interesting that, the, that Christ or the Lord has had dialogue with Adam and Eve, but look at verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent... <laughs> He doesn't ask the serpent, did you deceive them into eating of the fruit? Have you come in as a parasite into this thing that I've created and called good? There's never a discussion. He just gives him a sentence. It really, if you had this dualistic concept of good and evil and Star Wars and, and God and Satan in your mind, you can't have that. He's so inferior to the things of God. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's called the Proto-Evangelion. You can impress all your friends. It's the first promise of the Gospel that we have in Scripture. This is really bad, but there's going to be a remedy. And her offspring and yours are going to fight for the rest of your days. And one day her offspring is going to overcome you and crush your head. Look at the rest of the curse. Now it's, um, it's Eve's turn in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Don't... It, never mind. <laughs> I've watched my wife do that twice and I'm so glad um, that she got to do that and not me. But I remember the pain and I really did think of this verse and thought, it wasn't going to be this way. <laughs> I will surely, that's a strong word in the Hebrew, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. And this, ooh, this is bad. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, you might say, well, well he didn't rule over her before. Oh, yes, he did. 
He did rule over her before. He named her. He exercised his role and authority over her before. But here's what's different before sin enters. It was done in such a holy manner. She had no problems with it. She had no desire to rule and exercise dominion over her husband until the curse is introduced. Now all of a sudden, you're going to have enmity and strife because though his position is to rule over, you're going to want to fight him for it. It happens. Um, Look at verse 17. If you own a weed eater, you can sympathize with this. And Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, does it now mean that work is bad? No. There's just a different element introduced because of the curse that didn't exist before. Now because creation is under the curse, it wars back against Adam's efforts. It's the same thing that you and I were against as well. One of the greatest things that enters in verse 19 that was not intended, and it's a whole other sermon, I'm sorry, was death. It's part of the curse. Um, had they, one commentator says, you know, the tree was a test, which means at some point they would have proved obedient and it could have been taken away. Maybe he's right, but I can tell you this. Had they remained obedient, they wouldn't have died. Verse 20, Adam officially names his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. That's what Eve means. She's the first. And in verse, 20, verse 21, oh, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothing. And we're like, great, now they have clothes. Do you know what that, do you know what that's saying? The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is foreshadowed right there. And the whole Old Testament sacrificial system's culmination in Jesus Christ is right there. The first animal that we know that had to be killed, God kills to cover their sins, foreshadowing this is just temporary. I'm going to provide something better that will cover your sin and your shame and your guilt once and for all. Guys, the final thing that we need to be saved from is in verses 22 to 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest out he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we would guess at this point they have not. And therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man in the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The last thing that we need to be saved from is banishment and alienation from the presence of God. You got the picture? Okay, good. I had to edit this. Um, it's some great Renaissance art. There is genitalia uh, in the picture, which is horrible. Um, and I'm not, I don't know about art. I asked some people, they didn't know either. You would think by this point in the story, you would know they got on coverings. Kind of important. Um, but I didn't want to offend any of you. What I want you to see is look at their faces. Because the artist, he so encaptures it in their faces. I mean, look at the anguish of Adam. 
He knows they've blown it. They are ruined. And look at like the woeful cry of Eve. I mean, she hadn't had kids yet and she's already going, we, we, we've ruined ourselves. And guys, I would tell you, this is all there is in life without a Savior. <laughs> this is the best you can hope for. This and some common grace here and there. You, you can't have a higher plateau in life than this. There is no hope of making all things right with one another and with God aside from His work on our behalf. But I want to close with a glimpse of hope, even though I can't tell you the rest of the story because then you wouldn't come back all summer. We could end here and it's, it's bad. But guys, you, you know the rest of the story. There is a life to come when all things will be made right as they were before verse 6, but it's going to be better because there is a guarantee that this will never happen again. There isn't any more testing because Christ passed it. Salvation ends not merely in returning to paradise, but home. Glory with our God. We see the ultimate consummation of that and what we study, and I'm going to read it to you and we'll close. In Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And and this really, I think, sums up all the Bible in this one verse. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Guys, there is a way in this life when the banished can become accepted and sin forgiven. It's the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, you are saved by God from God. Ultimately, you are saved by God from the God who can justly judge you. Won't you study further with us this summer and find out how? Heavenly Father, we pause once again to praise You that Your Word is true. And if we stopped at Genesis 3.24, we could, we have no hope. We would all leave and go home and be hopeless. But we bless You this evening for Revelation 21. That a day is coming and our hearts skip a beat when we think about the fact that all things will be made aright. And Father, our hearts don't skip a beat because we think about there'll be no more deadlines or this or that or bills or sickness. Our hearts skip a beat because one day we're going to get You. One day we are going to fully know and be known by You without any taint of sin. And we will dwell with You forever. I pray that You would encourage and minister to Your people in light of that. In Jesus' name, Amen.